Good evening, everyone. My name is Leo, for those of you who don't, don't know me, and I'm a member here. I'll be doing the scripture reading tonight from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We have these blue books in the back uh, for those of you who are guests and may want a Bible to take home. That's our gift to you. You can also use the Bibles that are in the pews in front of you. Uh, just put, put them back because they belong to Christ Church. Again, this is uh, the scripture reading from Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. Thank you, Leo. Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you, and if you are new, joining us for the first time, a warm welcome to you. My name's Steve, and we're really glad that you're here. Uh, So we are in the Advent season, and Advent means arrival, so we both look back to the first arrival of Jesus on the first Christmas day, and then we anticipate the second arrival of Jesus when he makes all things new, when he consummates his kingdom. And so what we're doing in this Advent season is we're looking ahead to Jesus's second Advent and asking, how does the fact that we are anticipating this real kingdom that's coming change how we live today? And today what we're looking at is the subject of parties. Parties, okay? Feasting. <laughs> wine, right? The good stuff. What's amazing about Jesus is he adds meaning to how we drink and how we eat, and he changes how we approach parties and celebrations. You know, we get to partake in them with other people. And so what's interesting as we look at this particular miracle Jesus does is if you look at verse 11, it says this, the first of his signs. So that word there for first is the word arche, or I think like the word arch, meaning it is the chief sign Jesus does, or it's the sign that's supposed to be the best or most important sign that Jesus does. And that's interesting because why isn't his raising of Lazarus from the dead the chief sign Jesus does? You know, the, the, the sign that shows Jesus' calling card, or Jesus healing the sick, or Jesus forgiving sins. You know, why is it him turning water into wine? And that is a great question, and that's what we're going to look at this evening. And so what we'll look at is first we'll see the purpose of parties. Uh, Second, we'll see how do we get into the party that Jesus gives and provides for us. And then number three, uh, how do we party differently uh, in light of the fact that Jesus has given us a party to partake in? So first, number one, what's the purpose of parties? Like here on earth, what's the purpose of parties? Number two, how do we get into the party that Jesus offers? And then number three, Uh, How do we party differently in light of the fact uh, that Jesus has prepared for us a party to partake in? Okay, so first, number one, what's the purpose of celebrations? What's the purpose of parties? And 
we see here in verse 3, Jesus is at a wedding, and it says, the wine ran out. Now, this is bad enough. I mean, imagine going to a party with 40 or 50 people and pizza is being catered and only one pizza shows up for 50 people. That party isn't going to last very long, right? So the wine's run out, but the problem is more, it's multi-layered because in this culture, shame and honor culture, the bride and groom would have been shamed for years uh, for the fact that they didn't have enough wine to, you know, to care for their guests. And in fact, you could sue people, and people would sue people if they didn't have a good enough time at your wedding. It makes wedding planning today seem not so stressful, right? And then number three, so it was the groom's main job to make sure there was enough wine. So for the rest of his life, people would have been telling the groom, like, dude, you had one job, man, one job, (laughs) and you didn't have enough wine for everybody. So Mary says the, the wine's run out. And then Jesus, he turns the water into wine. And we'll get back to the exchange between Jesus and Mary in a moment. And so we have to ask now, you know, why does Jesus make this his arch sign, his chief sign? And why does he do it here at the party? And it's as simple as this. Jesus wants to communicate that he has come to keep the party going. That's what Jesus is communicating here, that he's come to give us a good time. That's why if you were here during our call to worship, we read from Isaiah 25, which talks about the coming kingdom. When Jesus fully consummates the kingdom, it uses language like there's going to be rich food, well-aged wine, the erasure of death and tears. In other words, a merry party. It's sensory, so not just spiritual. It's physical, emotional, communal. Life as it's meant to be. This is what Jesus has come to do. And uh, there's an author named Frederick Beekner, and I was reading one of his works called Secrets in the Dark. He talks about this time how he goes to SeaWorld in Florida. Mike, I'm sure you've been there, right? Yes, you have. So if you've been to SeaWorld, or if you haven't, you can imagine this. There's this killer whale exhibit. And so he says he and his family, they go to the, you know, the killer whale exhibit, and there's you know, five or six killer whales in this giant clear tub of water. So you can see not just above the water, but underneath the water as well. And the whales start swirling and, and jumping around, and it's a beautiful day, and he, he describes it as, it's as if, it's like time froze, and all of creation entered into one unimaginable dance of joy, like the whales, the men and women there, the water and sun itself, and then he realizes to his surprise that he's crying. He, he has tears running down his face, and he's like, What's going? And then he looks over at his wife, and she's crying, and he looks at his daughter, and she's crying. He's like, why is everybody crying with all these fish jumping around? And later as he is reflecting on it, uh, this is what he writes. He says, <clears throat> The world is full of darkness, but what we saw in that moment with the whales is that deeper and more real than the darkness that surrounds us, there is joy unimaginable. We shed tears because we caught a glimpse of the peaceable kingdom and it had almost broken our hearts. For a few moments, we saw Eden and were part of the great dance at the heart of creation. I believe what we saw there is that joy is what we truly belong to. Joy is home. And the tears that came to our eyes that day were homesick tears. And the cry of Mary when she looks at Jesus and says the wine has run out, that's the cry of every human heart. 
at some point in your life you realize like all the wine metaphorically that you look to for fulfillment, security, or satisfaction has run out. Or maybe some of you have felt like you've never received wine in the first place. And the cry of Mary, which is the cry of our hearts, is there is basically what Beatner saw. Is there any joy deeper than the ache of creation? Is there any elation I can experience that's deeper than the ache I feel in my own being? Is there a peaceable kingdom? If so, I want that peaceable kingdom. I want to be in that peaceable kingdom. And what Jesus here is saying is, that's exactly what I've come to do. I've come to bring you that peaceable kingdom. I've come to bring you into the dance at the heart of all reality that you know is there, but you can only quite barely put your finger on. And so the reason why this is his, his first sign, his arch sign, is be, and not raising of Lazarus from the dead or, or forgiving someone's sins or healing the sick is because as important as those things are, Jesus wants to communicate that he hasn't just come to remove the bad, to remove sickness, to remove sin, right, to remove pain and death, but he's come to bring the positive presence of joy inexpressible is what Jesus has come to do. And as we think about this, we have to ask, you know, whether you're here and you're exploring the faith or whether you're a Christian, is this how you view Jesus? And, you know, a lot of you in our our church are, you know, generally joyful people. You don't take yourselves too seriously. That's one of the things that I love the most about hanging out with you guys. But as I was studying this text, like, I think what we have to ask is, in our lives, do we view the things of Jesus? You know, so going to church and obeying him and doing all the things that following Jesus entails as the boring stuff or the dull stuff. But then, you know, when I want to really have a good time, I put my not Jesus hat on and I do other stuff. But yet, if that's how we view Jesus and life in his kingdom, then Jesus is saying is, what he's saying is, you've missed the point completely of everything that I'm about. And when we realize this, this should change, you know, how we think about the Christian life. You know, does the Christian life involve self-denial in certain areas? Yes. You know, does it involve, you know, living according to Christ's kingdom ethics on our own? Yes. But even more than that, it's about entering into the joy he's brought us into. And so, you know, when you think about words that we tend, some people, you know, make words like dirty words like obedience. You know, like people don't like that word now. Or sanctification, you being made more like Jesus. While those things may be hard in the moment, they're all for the end of giving us joy. And even think about, like, think about the question, do you look forward to heaven? And because the more people I talk to, the more I realize is often there's this sentiment, and I get it, I felt it a number of times, there's the sentiment of like, I hope Jesus, I want him to come, but I don't want him to come yet, because there's a lot of things that I want to experience. Uh, you know, before Jesus comes. And what Jesus is communicating here is, you know, if you find the worship of God, you know, being in the presence of God fully for all eternity as boring, like the things that you love the most and the things that you long for the most rightly here are the most fleeting droplets of the infinite joy that God is. And that's what Christ wants to bring us into. So just, you know, like this is what he's come to do. Um, There was a, uh, I heard this story about an elder, or um, he wasn't an elder, he was a man in a church who wanted to become an elder or deacon. And the leadership told him no. 
And the reasoning was very interesting. I mean, it was multi-layered, but one of the reasons they gave was, you're too serious. <laughs> like, can you imagine being disqualified for that? <laughs> like, you know, just like you're, you're overbearing. Everything for you is always like a conversation of life and death. And, you know, I mean, one of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And the, the church's point was like, I don't think you've quite realized what Jesus has come for. And yeah, there, there's an element of, yeah, we... The world is incredibly dark, and there's room to grieve and to lament and have serious conversations, but there also needs to be an element of joy. And so th- that's just the first thing. I think we often need to recheck ourselves on, on what Christ has actually come to do for us. So that's the purpose of parties. Like when we celebrate parties, they should always serve as a signpost to this peaceable kingdom that Jesus is bringing about. So number two, we have to ask, you know, how do we get in to the party? Just does everybody show up and, you know, we get in? Um, how, how do we get into the party? And we see this here in a couple places. So first, let's look at verse 6. Now, there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So everything Jesus does is purposeful. And what he does is he chooses these gigantic jars that held the ceremonial waters of the Jewish rites of purification to put the water in that would be transformed to wine. And so you have to ask, why does Jesus choose these jars? And so these jars were used for ceremonial washings. And the point of these washings was basically all about cleansing external dirt on your body. So you had to wash your hands, you had to wash your feet, you had to wash your utensils, you had to wash everything. It was exhausting. And it was to communicate that you had to be clean before entering into the presence of God. And it's not that this was bad. The problem is everything that these jars and ceremonial washings were about is they were incomplete. So first notice, they were only about removing the negative. Okay, so like removing, they were metaphorical of removing sin before you go into the presence of God, but nothing about the positive presence of joy. And two, they were all about the external, so removing the dirt off of your body, but not healing what's in here. You know, the brokenness that you feel in here, the selfishness that you feel in here. And so when Jesus chooses these jars for this chief sign that he's going to do, he's saying is, I'm going to, fix is the wrong word, I'm going to complete what these, what these jars are pointing to. And that explains this odd, this odd dialogue that he has with his mom in verse 4, verse 4 and 5. So G- Mary asks him to do something about the fact that they have no wine. She knows Jesus is a special child and he's handy to have around. And then Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And that looks disrespectful. You know, if I told my mom, woman, she'd be like, well, psh. but <laughs> that's not what he's, that's not what he's saying. So this word here for woman, it's hard to translate. Uh, perhaps a more accurate way to translate it would be how we think about using the word ma'am today. Like if you were, if you use the word ma'am, I don't know, sometimes I'm out of touch. Maybe it's not what the kids are doing these days. But like when I was growing up, okay, and you say ma'am, or even when I use it today, it's a formal but a bit distant way to address someone. And that's what Jesus is doing here. It's like he's all of a sudden in, a, in his mind, he's become a little bit distant. And he's a little bit removed from what's going on, and that's why he calls his mom ma'am. And it's a little bit like, have you guys ever been at a gathering where people are generally just having a good time, but there's something heavy weighing on your heart? And it, it's, almost as a, it's almost like an out-of-body experience where you feel like you're in a different dimension from everyone else around you. And it's just, 
it's even hard to comprehend, like, how can you be laughing right now when I'm feeling this way? And that's what's going on with Jesus. And you ask, well, why? You know, why do you feel this heaviness? And the answer is in this seeming non sequitur that he gives. He says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And anytime the word hour is used in the Gospel of John, specifically, the Gospel that we're in now, the hour is used to, um, to refer to Jesus' moment of crucifixion. And that's what he's thinking about. You have to ask, you know, why are you at a party and you're thinking about your death? That's weird. When you combine it with these ceremonial jars that he wants to, you know, perform the miracle in, and the party that's going around, in other words, what he's thinking is about them, and therefore for you and me, is in order to give you the wine that never runs out, in order to heal the ache and the brokenness that you feel within and the darkness that's in the world, is I have to go to the cross. And on the cross, I have to be judged in your place for not putting God on the throne of your life. And I have to be cut off from God. You know, on on the cross, Jesus cried out, I thirst. He experienced the cosmic thirst of being cut off from God. Why? So that you can be brought into the presence of God and experience the joy that brought tears to Beekner. Not just to see the joy that brought tears to Beekner, but to be brought into it. To mingle with the splendors of creation that you see. Most of all, the triune God himself. And so that's what he's thinking about here. You know, as you think about coming to a great party, if you guys have ever hosted a party, like especially a a lavish party, you know it's really expensive. And so Jesus doesn't just host this party, but he pays for the party with his death, you know, followed by his resurrection. And so then we ask, okay, if he's paid for the party, he's invited us to the party, how do we come into the party? And the answer is in what Mary, what Mary does. So notice when the, the wine runs out, the mother of Jesus, that's Mary, she runs to Jesus and she says they have no wine. She doesn't, she doesn't tell the groom, oh, don't worry, I'll take care of it. She doesn't go to Jesus and say, let me help you a little bit. No, she tells the servants, like, just do whatever he tells you because Jesus is the only one who can fix the situation. In other words, she brings nothing to the table. And while, you know, modern secular humanism and Buddhism and Islam and, you know, all the great religions of the world, every other thought system does offer a vision of the good life. Like, Jesus isn't isn't unique there. One of the things, though, that makes Jesus different is whereas every other thought system says here is ultimately the things that you need to do to fix what's in here and to fix what's out there, is what Jesus says is ultimately, no, it's all about what I've done. And it's you coming to me with nothing, knowing I need you to be the one to give me the wine that doesn't run out, to fill the ache in my soul. And then once you're in, that's when you start doing. You work out of the joy you already have, not to obtain this good life that you need to work for on your own. And so uh, just some thoughts here for those of you who may be exploring the faith and for those of you who are Christians. So if you're here and exploring the faith, I'm sure you, know, you may have a lot of questions, um, but I hope if anything what you see in this passage is that what Jesus wants for you more than anything else is for you to have the inner joy on the inside that the best parties express on the outside. That, that's what Christ has come to give you. To have joy on the inside 
what mirrors, what the best price express on the outside. It doesn't mean everything is going to be fixed today. That's one of the things I love about our Savior is often he's crying over the brokenness of the world. But he does make you new, and he does promise you a new creation where he does make all things new. That's the first thing for those of you who may be concerning the faith. And for those of you who are believers, so I think it'd be easy when you hear things about, okay, like, how do I enter the kingdom? You're like, got that, check. But how we enjoy the kingdom is by doing this every single day. By starting the day and going to Jesus and saying, I really have nothing to bring, i.e., I mean, God has made you with many gifts and talents and so forth, but daily we need to shatter the lie of self-sufficiency and instead to embrace the fact that every breath we have is a gift. And we, we need Christ to empower us to do things like show compassion to other people in ways that we just can't do on our own, in our jobs and in our families. So going to him in utter dependence, bring nothing to the table so he can empower us as we live with him every single day. Because that, that's how we get into the kingdom and enjoy the kingdom once we're in, is bringing nothing to Christ and asking him to give us this wine that doesn't run out. And so um, finally, number three, uh, in light of this, um, in light of this amazing party that Jesus is bringing for us, that he promises us, how does this change how we party today? Because uh, Christian life is always very concrete. And so, especially as we head into Christmas week, and a lot of you will probably be entering or just having a lot of parties, whether it's just enjoying Trader Joe's desserts on your own in your house, maybe that's just me, or, you know, you're going to gatherings and celebrations. Like, how does this change how you drink, how you eat, and, and so forth? And um, the first thing is, anytime we eat and drink and, and we're with people, we have an opportunity to consciously reflect on the fact that the most tasty of foods and best of wines only do in part what Jesus does in full. They only do in part what Jesus does in full. And this gets very practical. So this, this should make us very thoughtful in how we think about parties in eating and drinking. And uh, it's interesting, in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you haven't read it, I think it will be required reading for the pearly gates, so you better get reading. Um, so the evil white witch, she, you know, she deceives Edmund, one of the children, and what she does with him is she gives him two different meals. One, she gives him Turkish delight, and it's this food where if you eat it, it's so good, and you, you won't stop eating it until you kill yourself, unless somebody pulls you away from it. But then she also gives him a, a meal of stale bread and water, and I think what Lewis is getting at there is the evil of the witch is symbolized in both overindulgence, right, the Turkish delight, but also unnecessary asceticism, right? And so how does this relate to how we eat and drink? Well, okay, let's, let's think about drinking. And I might step, out, step on toes here, um, but just if I do, just let's talk about it afterward. Um, <laughs> let's, just, let's just think through this. As a family, okay, so on the, so drinking, to be clear, is a matter of Christian liberty. You can be a Christian and drink, you can be a Christian and not drink. I mean, the Bible clearly doesn't condone drunkenness, but you can drink. And so, on the one hand, if you choose not to drink, think about how you go about doing that. You know, why do you not drink, and what's the attitude that you present to other people? I remember, so when I was in high school, I, I chose not to drink alcohol. I wanted to wait till I was 21, and but I would still go to parties, and, you know, to be honest, I didn't realize it until this, this moment happened, but I did it in a little bit of a snobbish way. Uh, I did it in a way where I, I did feel like I was a little superior to the people who, sounds horrible to say out loud, but that is what I thought, until one of my friends, she wasn't a Christian, but she just called me out on it. She's like, hey man, 
I know you choose not to drink, and that's fine, but how dare you think that you're somehow, you know, better than other people here? Like, yeah, okay, you live according to a different ethic, but it's not like they're bad people. They're just trying to have fun, and she was right. I mean, she was right in the sense, because even, like, there was a noticeable emotional change in me, and, you know, like, a, a distancing that you could sense, even if I was close to you, that I didn't quite approve of what you were doing. And so, if you choose not to drink, just be aware of, you know, how you are presenting yourself, and are you presenting yourself as higher than? And so, maybe a lot of you are like, I have no problem with that area. I love, <laughs> I love to drink. And so, let, guys, so just let's think about this. Um, because I think there can be a tendency to think things like, well, you know, when I'm with friends, especially friends who aren't Christians, I don't want to make them think that I'm judgy, or I don't want to make them think that, like, Christians can't have a good time, so I'm just going to do everything along with them. And, okay, have a good time, but shouldn't there be something different about the way you drink or the volume by what you drink, if ultimately we know that good drink doesn't give us joy, but it points to the festival joy that Jesus gives us. And, you know, in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you know, Jesus says explicitly, when you've come into my kingdom, I've given you not just responsibility, but the privilege of living a different life so people will see your good works and be attracted to me. And so this isn't about putting on a pious air. But I think about if you know you have this great party coming, just asking if someone were just observing the room and they didn't know you and they didn't know anyone else in there, would there be a difference in how you're partaking the celebration compared to those who don't walk with Jesus? So I I hope that challenges you and just something, you know, something for for us to consider as a church. And so uh, that's the more like, quote, negative or challenging component of this. Um, Let's think about a little, let's think about a more positive element. Um, as you think about, you know, as you sit down or you're enjoying a tasty beverage or good food, when you know this about Christ, it like infuses these experiences with meaning. And this is what I love about Jesus is he gives our quote mundane moments um, like a sense of sacredness about them and a sense of wonder about them. And uh, not long ago, I was talking with a friend of mine who's an atheist, and we just, we got talking about, you know, the subject of, you know, meaning in life and hope, and then we got talking about fun. And he unprompted just said, he was like, you know, what's interesting is in my worldview, um, fun and humor is nothing more than basically just the means to the end of survival. So, because that, that's ultimately, right, like any adaptation we have is to help us survive and propagate the species and so forth. So he's like, if I'm having a good time and I'm laughing, having fun, like sometimes I just stop and think like, oh, this is just a chemical thing to help me live a little longer. And then I get depressed because I realize like my fun ultimately doesn't mean anything. And so these are just, these are his words, you know, not mine. Um, But what's amazing about Jesus is the more you think about the meaning behind your fun, actually the more meaningful it gets. And so when you sit down to a meal like, here's an example of something you can think or pray. And so there's a book, I know some of you have it, it's called Every Moment Holy, where it gives these little prayers that you can pray uh, before just ordinary things like, you know, um, setting up a Christmas tree or, or sitting down to eat and so forth. And here's just an example of, of what I'm talking about. <clears throat> so you can pray something like this. In celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, Sorrow and tears 
will not have the final word. But the joy of fellowship and the comfort of friends new and old and the blessings of food and drink and conversation and laughter are the true evidence of things eternal and are the first fruits of that great joy that is to come and will be unending. So let our feast this day be joined to those sure victories secured by Christ. Bless us, O Lord, in this feast. I mean, doesn't that add so much wonder, just something simple as eating a meal? And that's what Christ invites us to do, not just during the Christmas season, but all year round, and and to praise God for this gift. And then uh, final application here as we think about this is, you know, in this Christmas season, uh, a number of you may end up being around people inside your family or not, where it's really hard to extend grace to them to even just want to be interested in anything they're saying, <laughs> to, to have a conversation, to be around them for longer than 12 hours. And, but yet you need to, just because that's a lot of times what happens this time of year. And so an encouragement as we look at this passage is, is Jesus is here, you know, with the party swirling around him, and he's thinking about what he's going to go through to give festival joy, to, or at least to offer it to people who are going to reject him and offer it to people who are going to receive it, you know, uh, many of us in this room, but then on a day-to-day basis, aren't fully grateful for everything that he's done. Um, Don't say this is a a guilt trip, this is more an opportunity. When you think about extending grace to someone, even just wanting to care about somebody, if you're extending grace, and you're expecting kindness in return, or a thankfulness for that grace you're giving or some kind of reciprocity for that grace you're giving and it doesn't happen and you get bitter, then you don't understand grace. Because that's the point of grace is it's given to people regardless of their character and regardless of their reciprocity, or lack thereof. And guys, this is, this is hard for me, but what it, it's an opportunity for us this Christmas season and beyond to walk in the footsteps of your Savior and extend grace to people when you feel like they really don't deserve it. One, it's just going to give you more joy, but number two, you might be the only person through whom that person gets to see the smallest glimpse of the peaceable kingdom that Jesus brings, and extending unqualified grace to them uh, is one of the best ways to do that. And so let's do that uh, as a community this Christmas season. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much that you are a God of infinite joy, and uh, it's this joy that you invite us into. Uh, Help us to remember that. Uh, Will you continue to remove the lies that we believe that you are more about our unhappiness and keeping us down or you're not to be trusted uh, more than uh, you are about our overflowing happiness and we can trust you more than anyone uh, most clearly seen through Jesus, your son. Uh, So we thank you for this festival joy that we get to look to and to partake in part uh, as we walk on this earth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.